Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash recommend today. So let's go to the North Albemarle Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram hotline and bring in uh, Barry Shuck, who's an historical pro football writer, member of the Professionals Football Researchers Association, and the staff writer at DogsByNature.com. Also an official voter of the NFL Hall of Very Good. Barry, how are we doing today? We're doing excellent. The Browns signed Greg Newsom and Anthony Schwartz uh, yesterday. Yes, I think that's the last of their uh, two two remaining rookies to get signed up. Excited to see those young guys. Excited to see what they're going to bring to the table. Um, you know, we've been having people on, um, and people have been reaching out to me, and they're really interested in getting. Uh, to the rest of the story about, you know, Art Modell, the Cincinnati Bengals, and how he went about buying that team in, in the Paul Brown uh, sort of Art Modell feud. First, I got to get to uh, the jerseys. I, I think we kind of, you kind of previewed them a little bit last week because you talked about the, the jerseys and the, you know, the different sets of the jerseys and different things. Um, what do you feel about them? And, and, and behind the scenes, um, what do you know about these 1946 uniforms? I know quite a bit about them. Um, the first big announcement was about a month ago. The NFL announced that teams could start using two different color helmets. Now, in the past, you could use a helmet for a throwback jersey. Take the 1960 Dallas Cowboys. They wore a white helmet, two blue stripes, a white star, but they could only use that helmet when they used the 1960 throwback uniform the whole uniform but now the nfl is allowing teams to use two different color helmets at any point Uh, right now the browns are approved to wear an orange helmet and they can decorate it any way they want to but they can only wear uh, an orange helmet where they're putting in to uh to for starting next year to, uh, to wear a white helmet as well the first four years of existence the Browns wore white helmets the next two years when they merged into the NFL in 1950 and 51. They wore a white helmet for day games and an orange helmet for night games, and that was because of an NFL rule. They played with a white football. They couldn't use light-colored helmets. So starting next year, the Browns can wear a white helmet any week they want. Now, that's important. And the reason why it's important, because they're going to announce today, and what we at DogsByNature.com think, is going to be the 1946 white shadow box jersey. Now, this is a white jersey that had three brown stripes encapsulated with two orange stripes on the sleeves, but it had a solid brown number with an orange drop shade or shadow box effect. 
and it's the only year that they, they wore them. They also wore a brown jersey that had three white stripes with two orange stripes, and it had a, a white number with an orange drop shade. But get this, Garrett, they only wore those brown jerseys for two for two games that year. That is crazy. I want and here's the thing I, I was wondering. I want these jerseys and, and thank you for breaking this down. That is an exclusive. A lot of people talk about the helmets. That is an exclusive uh, in terms of them putting in uh, for a request to wear a white helmet next year. Um, if, if and let me ask you this, if they do wear that white helmet, um, will it be uh, do you believe there will be a stripe one stripe like they have on the helmet now? Or will it be a traditional um, double stripe on the white helmet? What are your thoughts on on what the design could possibly be, given the historical content of what they were in context uh, back in the 40s? Well, it depends on what look they're looking for. The the original white helmet that they used, and this was the very first game, very first year, they wore solid white. And, of course, back then it was leather helmets without face masks. But they were solid white. Paul Brown was a traditionalist. You know, I think if Paul Brown went to an ice cream place and and bought an ice cream sundae, he would put vanilla on top of vanilla. That's the kind of guy he he liked tradition. He liked things simplistic. That's why the, the there's no logo on the helmets, I believe. But they can do anything they want to with that. I would assume if when they're not wearing the 1946 when I. When they wear the 1946 jersey, they'll be wearing a solid white helmet to be historically accurate. Now, this is not until next year. But what they could do is, and I would assume, is to put two brown stripes with a center orange one and then wear it with a uniform. Either wear it with a white jersey, wear it with an orange jersey or a brown jersey. They could do whatever they want to with it. Um, If they use it with the 1946 jersey this year though they will not be able to use the white helmet they have to use the orange helmet so if they show up in a game this year which would unlikely be a home game they would be wearing the white 1946 shadow box jersey with an orange helmet now that in itself is not historically accurate and i would assume they would take all the stripes off of it to at least appear to be accurate without striping. So historically, that's not going to be accurate. But if you look at the jersey itself, and I've seen one, there are a lot of things on the jersey that are not historically accurate. Like, number one, the NFL shield is right there in that V-neck, which all jerseys have to wear. Um, Back in 1946, of course, they were in the All-American Football Conference, so it didn't have anything to do with the NFL. But that's not accurate. There's a Nike swoosh on the the sleeve. That's not accurate. And we have what's called TV numbers. Those are the numbers, the jersey number that are on the uh, shoulder part on both sides of the jersey. That was invented just for television. They're going to have to put TV numbers on these. Then there's a 1946 commemorative patch. And that, of course, is just for this jersey. But one other thing, Garrett. If there's a player nameplate on the back of the jersey, that's not historically accurate either. Now, I assume that they would put each player's name on the back of the jersey, which is tradition. 
But in the NFL, that didn't happen until the 1970 season. So the fact that they're putting all these other adornments on it is just a modern-day requirement and take versus what's historically accurate from 1946. Awesome. That's su- that's that's such great information, and I want to thank you for that because um, I had to get you um, on, on the record as ter- in terms of those uniforms because I know you just know so much about. We talked about that a little bit before, um, and we of course we have Barry Shuck on um, the Don't Throw Him Say Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram uh, Hotline, and then Barry is is uh, you know one of the top historians uh, when it comes to the Cleveland uh, Browns. We left off at the story last time, Barry, uh, talking about Art Modell um, and uh, his relationship with Paul Brown and Art Modell coming to a point where he finally was in the ownership group in terms of buying um, the Cleveland Browns. And, and, and I think we left off at that point of your story. Yeah. In early 1961, there were rumors that the Browns might be for sale. And at the time, they were the most successful team in the NFL. Um it was rumored that the team could go between three and four million. In 1960, and then in 1961, the NFL had two expansion teams, the Dallas Cowboys and the Minnesota Vikings. Well, they only paid a million dollars apiece to join the NFL, yet here the Browns are rumored to be going from three to four million. There were two groups that were trying to buy the Browns. One was Bill Evans of the Diamond Alkali Company, which is a chemical company out of West Virginia. But they had a large chemical plant in Fairport Harbor, Ohio. So there's the tie-in. The second group involved Rudy Schaefer, who was head of the Schaefer Brewing Company. And the second majority owner was Arthur Modell. Now, he was a New York advertising executive, and he also in television. And there was about four uh, four or five other minority owners. And um, Schaefer was highly sought after because all the beer companies that started in America were all German. When the Germans migrated uh, over from Europe over to the United States, of course, they brought their craft and their uh, what they knew best into this. Miller, Anheuser, Bush, all of those companies – were all German, a yingling. So they that was a national brand, and the NFL welcomed and wanted somebody that the financial means but had the name recognition of Schaefer Brewing Company. Now, Garrett, what goes better than football and beer? Nothing except football, beer, and some brats and some, uh, you know, good a good hot dog. <laughs> they ain't nothing go I better than I forgot about that. the food. <laughs> can't do that <laughs> yeah yeah you have to throw the grill in there somewhere yes sir so schaefer beer was uh just one of the brands they they, you know, they later started making the brand keystone um and back in the day in the early 2000s the patriots used to play in schaefer stadium well that was the very first sports stadium that had naming rights that paid for naming rights for a stadium was Schaefer beer paid that stadium. I think it was called Sullivan stadium before that. So the Patriots played in Schaefer stadium. Um, Now 
Well, now that the cat was out of the bag about the Browns being for sale and that, that the two possible ownership groups were identified, the current owners, which were headed uh, by a man named Jones, had to make a decision of which group to sell to. And after they made a decision of which group to sell to, they would have to go in front of the NFL owners for a vote, and the NFL owners could accept or reject the new owners. It would be a three-quarter of majority vote. There were 14 teams, so that meant that they would need nine, nine votes. And just because you're an owner, agree to sell your team to somebody, that doesn't mean that it'll actually happen until the sale comes up for a vote during an owner's meeting, and you get the three-fourths approval. And Paul Brown had one of those votes, even though he only owned – uh, 5% of the Browns, he went to all the owner me- meetings and represented the Browns and everything. If he was on a competition committee, he was a 5% minority owner, but he represented the Browns in all aspects with the league. So if his team came up to be sold to a, one of these two groups, Paul Brown had one vote to say yes or no. Um, now, the group headed by Schaefer and Modell was selected by Jones to purchase the Cleveland Browns. And at the time, it was viewed as more of getting the Schaefer Beer Company, which at the time was a national uh, recognized uh, brand, than it was the other owners, including Modell. Uh, both Schaefer and Modell would be the majority owners, with Schaefer having the largest percentage. Both of these men hailed from New York City where they maintain homes. Well, when the Browns were sold, Modell would soon purchase a home locally as well and move to Cleveland on a permanent basis. Now, at the time, Cleveland Municipal Stadium uh, seated uh, over 74,000 for baseball and 81,000 for football. In the NFL, the home team took home 60% of ticket sales, all the concessions, all the parking, all the in-stadium advertising and program sales. That meant that the visitors received 40% of the gate. Now, television contracts at the time were done by each individual team on their own and not shared with the other teams. Did you realize that? I, I didn't know there was um, there was there wasn't revenue sharing like that. No, I, I didn't. Uh, it, the Bears and the Giants were famous for for having their own TV contracts, and it was always on a regional basis. But they worked out the negotiations themselves, so there wasn't TV money back in 1961 when the Browns were sale. So that wasn't a revenue issue. So the ticket sales were the main source of income for both the home team and the visiting team. And the Browns usually sold out every game. Uh, The NFL owners, as a group, wanted to make sure that that did not change. One of their concerns was that, you know, oftentimes when an ownership group comes in, they make a change with the head coach. The Browns annually were one of the NFL's best teams, and good teams mean good ticket sales. The questions the NFL owners had for the new ownership group was, were they going to retain 
Paul Brown. You see, this is the, the day. Uh, this is in the day before revenue sharing skyboxes and national brand selling rights for millions. There weren't any billion dollar TV deals. It was star players, winning coaches, winning records, and having the most W's is what drove people through the turnstiles. And for for a lot of teams, Cleveland's forty percent visitor share outgained their own home stadium percentages because of the sheer sheer size of municipal stadium and the sellout crowds. Remember how big municipal stadium was before they tore it down? Oh yeah, it, it was huge. I I mean, what wasn't it eighty almost eighty thousand? Yeah, eighty one thousand for for football. That's so crazy. before before the sale of the Browns to the Schaefer Modell Group was finalized, the other NFL owners consulted with Paul Brown to ensure that the switch in ownership wasn't going to disrupt any stadium deals so that the same good paydays would continue. Plus, they wanted to make sure that Paul Brown would remain as the head coach. Almost every NFL owner telephoned Paul Brown personally to discuss these two matters prior to the vote on the pending sale. Now, they didn't call the new group. They didn't call the outgoing owners. They called Paul Brown. And keep in mind, even though this involved the very team Paul Brown was coaching, plus he was the GM, plus he was a minority owner, he held one vote to approve or reject the sale to the Schaefer Modell Group. Plus Mm. the other owners in the league trusted Paul Brown to continue to be a good steward for the league as a whole and help the league move forward in the minds of American sports fans. Uh, Garrett, I remember in um, in 1961, baseball was king. Yes, it was. Um, I'll look at this. We all we have about you know 30 seconds left, Barry. And what I wanted you to do is I want you to set it up. We'll have you back on um, coming up here in the next couple of weeks. We'll have you back on. And so we're at a point right now in your story where uh, Paul Brown is the key fixture, uh, and he actually approved the sale or or, or, or to the Art Mobile Group. When you come back, can you can you tell us how um, that relationship sours going into the 70s? Absolutely. There's there is a good timeline and there's a reason for that. Definitely. Barry, I thank you so much. We'll have you back on. Thank you so much for this continued series. Really enjoying it. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you very soon. Anytime, my friend. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. 
Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.